what features do we think could be revolutionary? What could be our next hot product that's really going to put us back into the light or help us just shore up the fact that we are a leader in this market vertical? And you'd be amazed at how much information, if you do this process properly, how much information you can gather. Right there, you've already tremendously mitigated a bunch of your, a whole bunch of your risks. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now... Here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. With new trends and technologies such as additive manufacturing and experimental design, it's never been this easy to launch and disrupt a hardware product category. The traditional manufacturers that are slow in taking advantage of these trends run a risk of being disrupted and become irrelevant in their market. The new trends require manufacturers to get inspired by the newer disruptive companies from their markets and be corporate entrepreneurs by changing their internal R&D workflows and capabilities. In today's episode, we have our guest Kevin Mako, who discusses how experimental design and additive manufacturing can help mitigate financial risks with innovative projects. He also discusses several technologies and trends that have been driving faster innovation in the manufacturing sector. Finally, he discusses what financial executives look for in a pitch and how engineering workflow changes with additive manufacturing methodology. Let me introduce Kevin to you. Kevin Mako is the founder and president of Mako Design plus Invent. The pioneer firm for providing world-class end-to-end physical consumer product development tailored to investors, product startups, and manufacturers. Established in 1999, Mako Design is a 30-person team with offices in Austin, Miami, San Francisco, and Toronto, has developed over 1,000 products for clients, and has earned over 20 design and business awards, including Red Dot, Inc. 5000, Entrepreneur 360, Indigo Gold, Creative Pool Gold, Best places to work, Lux Magazine, Best Design Firm in North America, and many others. Kevin lectures at the Masters of Engineering program at Ryerson University, sits on a number of entrepreneurship and education boards, invests in small service-based businesses, and holds the Duke of Edinburgh Gold Award designation. Kevin has over 100,000 followers on social media, does keynote speaking all over the world for audiences between 100 and 1,500 people, and is the host of the Product Startup Podcast. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Sam, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, my pleasure. And I am super excited to dig into your background and how that is going to be related to our listeners. But before we do that, do you want to kick things off with your personal story and your current focus? Sure, happy to. The um, Just the, the quick story here is that today we do essentially high-end product development, world-class physical product development for inventions and gadgets, but tailored to small manufacturers and small businesses. So generally companies under 100 employees for the most part. And all of that started when I was in high school over 20 years ago with that very concept. I'm one of those businesses that didn't really ever pivot. The 
same goal then was the goal that we have now. And you know, it was obviously very difficult in the beginning. Started in high school, incorporated in university, did two degrees, uh, one at biz school, um, and then the other at Hong Kong University. After that, went full-time into this and uh, turned down the investment banking management consulting jobs to take the take the long shot at this, but while you know begging them to keep the door cracked open for me if I uh, crashed and burned, which was the likely probability back in 2007 when I went into this full-time and the market just collapsed around us. But anyways, uh, one way or the other, here we are now today with uh, 30 uh, designers across four offices from coast to coast in the US and Canada. So that is a very interesting and crazy background, in my opinion, because typically when I look at the engineers and the people who are involved in the product development, they don't necessarily have as much financial literacy, to be honest, in terms of doing the product costing and in terms of understanding what the needs are going to be of a CFO. So this is going to be a great in terms of understanding your experience and how your experience has been in collaborating with CFOs. But before we do that, we have one of the standard questions that we ask every single guest that come on the show. And that is going to be your perspective on business growth. When you think of word growth, what does it mean to you, Kevin? Well, I I come from an interesting perspective on growth because in order for me to have grown in the early days, especially in my 20s, essentially, I had to risk it all. I was one of those businesses that is completely organically grown from just myself to the 30 people that we are today. So never had any investors, never had any debt, never had any financing. So for me, growth comes with it a very kind of crazy secondary fear, let's call it, which is very motivational, which is if you're trying to double up an organic growth company, essentially you have to risk it all. Because every time you start making money and you really want to grow to the next level, you have to put it all on the line in order to get to the next level after that and so on. So I basically played that game going from $0 to profit back to zero to profit every time I wanted to scale, about five or six times throughout the first 10 years of building this business. Okay, amazing. So one of the things that I would like to mention here, as you know, you know, I'm pretty sure you have worked with a lot of different CFOs and finance folks. They sure. don't like to hear the word risk. <laughs> okay, they just don't, <laughs> Absolutely. don't like risk, okay? Risk is for engineers and, and product developers. <laughs> What we want to see is how we can mitigate that risk. So do you have any specific strategies from your perspective? Because you are saying that if you want to grow, you definitely have to take risk. But that risk has to be manageable. We should be able to mitigate the risk. So from your perspective, let's say if we talk about our traditional manufacturers and distributors, they are not going to have as much experience in or appetite in taking those risks. So what Absolutely. will be your advice or recommendation in terms of taking enough risk so that they can grow the way you are growing right now. So, you know, the interesting thing is when you have a career story, an entrepreneurial story like mine, and you have had to have that dance with very delicately with risk, right? You become very, very acutely aware of what those risks are. So I would say if you looked at the way that an entrepreneur especially a high growth, especially one who's you know, relying on internal financing, essentially financing by clients, you can't just take bold or aggressive risks. So one of the big things that we did in order to scale without collapsing and to be able to do that over and over and over again is just like in a relentless appetite for experimentation. Very small, very calculated tests, no matter what that would be, whether it's new marketing programs, new advertising avenues, new website new methodologies, new client base, whatever it might be, 
when you're trying to scale and grow and you are very risk averse, it's far easier to take the little bite sized chunks and then start to see what works and then slowly start to develop the ones that seem to be working and let go of the losers. And that is one of the things that some entrepreneurs and some CFOs and some companies will say that uh, we really want to focus on one big thing and put our eggs in one basket. But if you have to be risk averse, aka if, if, if you have to be very careful about the financing, if it's not an option to fail, which it isn't for most people, then the easiest way that you can kind of be creative about that without losing potential opportunities is just to relentlessly focus every month. What are you trying this month and how are you benchmarking that? What sort of key metrics are you using to test whether or not that seems to have any flavor to it or whether or not that's something that should just be tossed to the side? You know, shiny object syndrome versus something yep. that actually is quantifiably valuable to your business as, it, as you're trying to scale it. Okay, amazing. There is a lot of insight there. But in my experience working in the manufacturing and working with CFOs, I'm still trying to connect the dots here, right? So typically, when you look at the experimentation or the R&D phase, my experience talking to a lot of different manufacturers, it's very hard to sort of calculate the risk and budget the experimentation project. And that is sort of the fear majority of the manufacturers have because they don't know how to plan for these projects, how to assess the risk of these projects. So they are not going over budget and they are getting the ROI from these projects. And the second thing that you mentioned is the bite size, which is very interesting, because as far as my experience with manufacturing goes and my experience working with manufacturer goes, bite size and manufacturing, they don't go hand in hand. So <laughs> yeah. uh, help us understand a bit, you know, how bite size and experimentation can work together while mitigating the risk, while not committing for this bloated amount of funds and budget and doing it in a manageable way the way you are doing. Absolutely, Sam. A good question, by the way. And, you know, we've worked with hundreds of companies over the years and exactly what you're saying here in terms of how do you and let's get specific here. How do you develop your next hot physical product, your next consumer product? And how do you do that in a bite sized manner? How do you take a stepping stone approach to it? And it depends, obviously, on the on the size and the scale. The bigger an entity, the, the further you could push a product down the development line, the more information you can actually get back from potential users or test groups or whatever else. But let's look at something. You know, I'll talk about a, a one client in particular, reliable products. We redesigned something called the Uber Light for them. Um, it's a basically this multi-use light. It, it started as a sewing light, but now it can be used in all these sort of things. Very high-end light, great feature. One of the easiest ways that you can start on kind of simple experimentation is just really professionally and smartly redevelop just the conceptual design and feature sets of that product. So one of the first exercises we generally go through with the company is there's a lot of data when you're looking at your organization around your next product. And you may even, you may not know just how much data there actually is. You know, you've got sales reps who are getting feedback from customers. You have customers themselves, which are posting reviews online about your, your products. You have engineers who are coming up with ideas. You have just random staff members, right? You might have a, a front desk person who has a great idea for a product. So one of the first things we like to put together when we're looking at whether it's a uh, a small or a medium-sized corporation. It's going to be all done all the way up to the large levels, but you build out kind of like an innovation schedule to ensure that you're able to collect all of those innovative ideas from within your team at a start, because that's the easiest, most accessible people. 
you can get this stuff done in no time, right? Once you've actually built out the plan, figured out how you're going to survey and collect that data, it's relatively easy to start surveying these organizations and trying to figure out, okay, well, what features do we think could be revolutionary? What could be our next hot product that's really going to put us back into the light or help us just shore up the fact that we are a leader in this market vertical? And you'd be amazed at how much information, if you do this process properly, how much information you can gather. Right there, you've already tremendously mitigated a bunch of your, a whole bunch of your risk, because now you've got all of the potential stakeholders weighing in on what they think are the good and the bad ideas and whatever else. And that is an incredible starting point to really use all of that knowledge base before you've ever even started designing your next version of the product, especially before you've started engineering or tooling or anything else, right? That's the first step. Okay, I could not agree more. I think involving everyone from the get-go is definitely going to halt the manufacturers in mitigating this risk from the get-go. But in our experience, and, and let's go back to the traditional manufacturing and, and the distribution. They are not necessarily as innovative as some of these startups are. And if I look at some of these products, it's not that these products are something brand new, that nobody was doing this functionally before. I mean, let's look at some of the products. Let's say if you guys are developing, maybe you guys are developing some sort of camera, you know, that's going to be in their water, right? And right. again, the utility is not new. I mean, people were utilizing these products before. They had their own ways of managing things. But somehow you guys are able to disrupt the space, are able to be successful in the space with these products. But traditional manufacturers are not able to do that. In fact, you are actually disrupting their market you are taking market share from the traditional manufacturers. So what are some of the things the traditional manufacturers might be able to do the way you guys are doing these things? Because obviously they are not as innovative as you guys are. So that's where it, it always comes down to that first thing is how do you actually be innovative? The amazing thing yeah. is a traditional manufacturer is you have exponentially more weight behind a new product than any yeah. startup out there. So in terms of your distribution network, your manufacturing supply chain, your your funding, let alone other things yeah. like the internal yeah. resources, the executive committee, et cetera, et cetera, right? You could go on with a long list of advantages. Of course, the disadvantages, you know, you don't have boots on the ground. You don't have the hundreds of thousands of people out there coming up with ideas or whatnot, potentially in your vertical or in your space or whatever else. So that innovation, it's difficult to get that same on the ground feedback. But you can actually hybrid those two with some of the things I said before. But taking it one step further, something really interesting that traditional manufacturers can look at when they're looking to you know, either build out their next product or even just improve what they have. First things first, 99 plus percent of patents today are not novel. They are integrations of two or more things that make that patent product yep. novel. The, so first, you don't have to be coming up with something that is so revolutionary like a teleportation machine to be innovative <laughs> today. It's taking innovation truly, especially at the mass manufacturer level, big producers, mid-sized producers, that is taking what you have and leveraging it based on the data that you're able to collect in those first phases. Small incremental improvements. And what I think is very interesting to your listeners especially is looking at, and we can go into this, Sam, if you'd like, but looking at the future of how to go from that innovation stage that we talked to earlier and getting to the point where you're actually test marketing certain things to see in a very cost-effective way what may or may not be those small incremental improvements 
that will really improve your bottom line or really enhance your revenue stream going forward. And there are some tremendous things happening in physical hardware space over the next 10 to 20 years that are going to leave certain manufacturers that are stuck in their ways in the dust. But for those who are willing to look forward and understand that like a new future is coming, you've got a front row seat of opportunity there to these things. There's a number of things happening there. There's really kind of, I would say, five or six key things. First and foremost, now this doesn't affect everybody. This is going to affect everybody in the near future, depending on how you think of this either directly and indirectly. But first and foremost, over the next 20 to 30 years, look around the room right now, whatever you're sitting in or look around your car, whatever else, every single thing that you touch and feel around you in that room that is manufactured will have a microchip in it. It will be connected in some way or another. It can be something more complicated, like we're already seeing something like the Nest thermostat or whatnot, or it'll be something very simple, like the seat you're sitting on to say, hey, look, you're, you, the, the cushioning is at 50% efficiency right now. You need to replace that couch cushion and tap here and we'll get a new one ordered to your house. Right? It could be very simple to very complex. But all of that is getting redesigned right now. There's an entire, let's, you know, like the industrial revolution, let's call this the connected revolution. There's an entire revolution of things happening right now, which is redesigning everything around us. So that is something that first and foremost, if you're a manufacturer, you have to look at your product line and say, how is this going to evolve? How is the market going to evolve over the next 10 to 30 years? And how am I going to be sure that I'm on that ride? Second of all, product design tools, software, prototyping techniques, materials design, et cetera, they are making product design or product innovation or incremental improvements to product easier and faster than ever, right? We all use SolidWorks uh, design software for mass manufactured products. You're using FEA tools for simulations. Every year, those tools are getting exponentially better, right? And other, as other players come in, right, like Autodesk Fusion 360 and such, and you're able to actually draw out your tool line straight from your CAD model, all, all automatically, organic shaping done automatically. All these sorts of tools and resources are making it exponentially faster for a manufacturer to make those improvements, not only faster, but far, far cheaper, especially when you start looking at some of these advanced prototyping techniques that are out there, not just 3D printing. Obviously, that that's the start of this pyramid, yep. but you get into much more advanced technologies that are, you know, even reverse silicon casting and all these sorts of 3D printed metals and this sort of stuff. So really being able to get good quality test prototypes to market groups to say, hey, is this great or not, right? Again, you're mitigating your risk and actually going to full scale production. Three, big companies are spending less on R&D, but much more money on acquisition of small startups. So Sam, you mentioned it earlier, it's hard to compete with the sheer innovation and risk taking and whatever else of the small folks. Well, here's the beautiful cherry on top of that whole thing. You don't need to compete with them. Let them prove the market. And this is happening with companies all over the world, right? Yeah. The Nest Thermostat's a great example, right? Let somebody build the next great thing and then you swoop in and acquire it and then leverage your history and connections and manufacturing experience and all of that to make them a hundred times or a thousand times the size that they could have been, right? We're seeing this happening at all the high levels, but this kind of logic is trickling down. 
Most of our clients that are really startup clients, almost all of them, when they prove the market and they get to like reasonable level of sales, not a big deal, maybe six figure in sales, right? Even low six figures, they get acquired. Somebody says, that's great technology. I'll buy it. You look at all, right? Like our pet bot or that, as you're talking about, the underwater fishing camera, go fish. They're all acquired. Moonlight, even the simple ones like Moonlight, little plastic piece acquired, right? So, so that's something to really keep your radar out is how can you acquire companies before they become big? And that's a critical thing. Hit them when they're just starting to make sales so that you don't have to pay 10 times the price a year later when they really start to catch on. And in fact, you can be a big part of that growth story. So it's a very inexpensive way to get a great new technology added to your line, either white labeled with your brand or whatever else, and then scale from there. Right now, big one coming in here. Talk about risk mitigation, additive manufacturing. This will change the game over the next 10 to 20 years. Manufacturing 50, 100, 200 units of a product, getting it out to the market, getting feedback, and then making small iterative changes, doing it over and over until you say, okay, I think we're ready to do 5,000, 10,000 units tooled up and going to market. So you now actually are able to test run your product to the market for a fraction of the cost. You won't be making any money because this is high cost production per unit. But it's a very cheap and easy way to test before you spend the big bucks on a full production line and marketing campaign and all the rest, right? And then you've got other things like crowdsourcing and, and you know, direct to consumer and all this other stuff too, which is all kicking into it, right? But when yeah. you look at all these things put together, it really is, a, is an incredible ecosystem of opportunity for those kind of those executives and CFOs that are looking to either acquire or develop in, in a smart way, small iterative improvements to their product so that they are they are at the front line of, of that revenue growth or that, that profit improvement over the years to come. Okay, so let's talk about additive manufacturing a bit more. So the way you are describing, I don't know if there is a real technology that has changed and because of that now additive manufacturing is possible. So let's say CFOs may not be aware of the additive manufacturing. So how would you describe what has been the changes in the technology that is allowing manufacturers to be able to produce these these goods in short runs and test out in the market before they can do the full production run. So tell us a little bit more in terms of what has changed and what is changing. So, you know, the way big picture of the way to look at it is you look at it like inkjet printers. It was incredibly expensive to print full color over the years. They got better and better to the point where now everyone has them in their home. And, you know, I can print out photorealistic picture in three seconds. Right. Yeah. It's the same things happening with 3D printing. Now, it's a little bit more complex. It may take a little bit longer, but the reality is the same kind of exponential technology growth is happening. It's happening to such a degree that what these big kind of 3D printing companies, eventually their goal is to do, and everybody's working on it at the high levels in 3D printing or additive manufacturing is saying, how can we get closer and closer and closer to the cost level of one plastic part tooled versus one plastic part printed? And of course, 10 years ago, very expensive. Every printed part was a fortune. The machines were a fortune. But as we all know, you know, Moore's law, (laughs) all of that is changing in time. So there are facilities. There's one in particular right now we're having kind of behind the scenes discussions with. So I can't go into it in too much detail, but they're building a $10 million facility in Texas just for this reason. So what they're looking to do is to produce up to 500 units for new products or changes to products or innovations on products both for early stage companies and for large corporations alike, essentially in a reasonably cost effective manner to test the market without being, you know, without actually paying to 3D print individual things. So they're setting up certain methods and production lines and and live technologies where they have 
certain materials getting fed in that can very quickly and efficiently 3D print, live changeovers, all that sort of stuff so that that your unit cost is coming down substantially. And it's amazing because there's no upfront costs, right? It's all variable costs. Once it, once it's actually designed and set up and tested, then it's just a matter of printing out more units. So this sort of technology, although it's at its infancy right now, just look at what happened to printers. It will happen to 3D printing where it just gets easier and faster and more efficient. So when you're thinking about your products going forward, you may want to think if it's not logical to tool up or if you want to try 10 different things in the market, but you can't tool up 10 different products or versions of that product, start to think, how could I do a few units? What partners can I use? How can I design this appropriately so that this thing could be not mass manufactured, right? Light manufactured or additive manufactured just to test out the market. You're even looking at companies, right? Like Adidas that are, are offering unique shoes to different users. You can actually customize your shoe online and then they're, they're using additive methodologies to send you a shoe that you're the only one in the world that has. So that's like the unique element of it, but there's also the speed and execution of it. All of that is coming together. All of that may apply to your products moving forward. All of that is heavily reducing your cost to market at least to, to test. And then once you've tested and you know it's a winner, then tool up. So that's why additive manufacturing is, is becoming so powerful. It's just, it's simply reducing the cost to actually test run units before you go to market. Okay, amazing. So obviously the technologies are great and I absolutely appreciate the trends and technologies. But when I talk to these traditional manufacturers, and obviously I'm talking to their engineers and from the skill perspective or from the appetite perspective, to be completely honest, they are one of the brightest people that I often talk to, right? No doubt. Uh, they all understand these technologies. They all are very creative. They all are hanging out on things like Clubhouse, <laughs> talking about newer technologies. <laughs> they all have multiple ideas. But their biggest challenge and the barrier always is working in these traditional organizations in pitching that next big idea and getting traction from the organization. Sam, th this is why it's so important. So if you're, if you've got these engineers or if you're a CFO or whatever it is and you're looking yeah. at it and, and you're trying to pitch up the chain in the corporation to say, yeah. you know, we want to do this. Here's the big difference. If you had a million dollar budget before, that gives you the, you know, you can try one or two new products into the market a year if that's your budget. Now you can go to your executive and say, you know what, for that same million dollars, we're going to try six products this year to market, to test yeah. market or on the inverse. Historically, if you had, if you were constantly bumping into that that uh, ladder ceiling and saying, "Look, here, here we we want to develop this product, we want to test this to market, and it's going to cost a million dollars," and the executive said, "Nope, stick to what we're good at." Now you can go to them and say, "It's going to cost two hundred thousand dollars," and obviously that's much more appetizing. So again, you're really reducing the barrier to entry for trying out new products, and then of course if the product's being successful. What executive doesn't want to look at something that you've now proven, you've market validated, maybe in a small geography or maybe with a very niche demographic, whatever that might be. You can now say, OK, look, for now only $200,000, we designed, developed, took this thing to additive manufacturing. We printed essentially 200 units. We sold it to this market. They were willing to pay. They loved it. Look at the reviews that are coming back. Of course, it's an out of the park success now with 200 units. Let's scale that to 20,000 units. Now you've got a great case model, a very quantifiable case model to say we've tested it and this is why we want to improve this as opposed to having a bunch of engineers or a bunch of financial executives saying, yeah, I think this is a good new idea and could be a big deal. 
Forget that. That's why those ideas get turned down historically. Now you have new technology that can give you essentially metrics behind that innovation. And if you're, if you're confused or, or on how to actually pull that off, we help numerous companies with that very thing. I'd be more than happy. Feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to shoot me a direct line of contact on my LinkedIn or whatever else. And at least I can point you in the, in the right direction, depending on the type of product that you're looking to innovate on. Okay, so let's talk about from the engineer perspective. So let's say if I'm the engineer in the organization, and obviously I like the pitch, and as a CFO, I'm probably going to like the pitch as well, that rather than investing a million dollars in one product category, now I'm diversifying my risk to five different products. So obviously that's a very fancy pitch, right? Now, let's say if I'm the engineer, my traditional workflow is going to be, I probably design this product in my CAD, I work with my traditional suppliers, or maybe I need to work internally, and that's how my R&D processes are set up. So let's say if I want to work in the new mindset, or maybe I want to work with you or a vendor like you, right? So how is my workflow going to change? What is going to be required from my side in terms of creating this new workflow where I can do these five products as opposed to doing this, this one product and create the entire workflow? So walk me through the process if you could. Well, first and foremost, I mean, you have to look at the innovation like you traditionally would and, and kind of understand what difficulties or challenges you may have in the design. Yeah. From what I've seen, there's always two types of hardware design. There is the one side, which is, okay, we've thought of a new way that this could be improved, right? Let's say you've got a cup with a handle and you say, you know, what, we're going to put a little pad onto the bottom of this cup because people keep breaking them when they hit them on the, when they set them down on the table. That's pre-existing technology. It's a clear improvement let's call it relatively easy to design an engineer. I mean, that one in particular is super easy, but this, this is the framework, right? You're using existing technology. Now there's the other side, which I like to call like experimental design. And that's where you say, you know what? We want to use a test lab to figure out a new material for that cup, the whole cup. Whereas if you set it down, it's unbreakable now. That is an entirely different type of design. That is what I call traditional R&D or experimentation. Whereas opposed to the flip side, is product evolvement or evolution, product evolution via design or pre-existing technology built into a new design or a new framework. Generally speaking, if you're an engineer, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the experimental side of things. And you're going to get a lot of interest when you can show a path to production with the non-experimental things. So what I would suggest is First and foremost, if you're going to come forward to the executive branch with new levels of innovation, make sure that you have a fairly clear technological path to that innovation because executives don't like the just open-ended experimentation. It may work. It may not work. So the more that you can shore up in terms of ensuring that the experimentation is not required, but the other innovation is, and it will improve the product in certain ways then the easier it is to get that sign off. So that that is the first thing that I think is very important. And we see that right at the startup levels, yeah. all the way through to Fortune 500 companies. We work with many different types of folks, and we always see those two different types. And we always tell the experimental ones like, absolutely, but they can try this, but it's an open-ended check. And that's what executives don't like to see. You can't go to an executive and say, well, it could be 100 grand or it could be 10 million. We're not sure. Hopefully we'll do it towards the <laughs> lower end of that. It, it, it's classic experimentation, right? How quick are you going to find a cure? Well, every 10,000 samples that you, different samples you put in gets you that much closer, but you don't know if it's 10,000 or a million samples before you find the one that clicks. And it's the same thing when it comes to hardware. 
hardware, you want to generally avoid experimental or at least have that as a small piece of the budget or a small piece of your ask. But the bigger piece of your ask focuses on, well, here's the clear, quantifiable, direct things that I think we will be able to build fairly easily that will improve the bottom line or the top line. Okay, amazing. Thanks for that. And we are about time, Kevin. So one thing I would like to mention here is I love hosting other podcast hosts because they have the most fascinating stories and the insight as well. So briefly, do you have any stories or insight that you got from your podcast from any of the guests? Maybe something that totally uh, rocked your world and that you would like to highlight? uh, Uh, That's a good question. Actually, so I run the product startup podcast and uh, we focus on essentially new hardware development. Uh, Most of our guests are kind of high level executives or extremely successful product manufacturers on one side or the other. And think of uh, Mike Morton, who was on the show. He used to be the head of design for all of Dell desktops, head of the the, the entire division for many years in any case. And one of the things that he always said, which is interesting, is he said, okay, you're looking to develop something new. And if it's experimental, basically look at it. And even if it's only partially experimental, which he says is always the pitch, right? As we we talked about before. But he says, first things first is double your budget and double the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, look, if you do that, then work backwards from that number and everybody will be happy. But don't try and push it, especially if you're trying to experiment or get creative or get clever with some really new technology that's pushing the boundaries of anything that's been done in the past. Really keep that in mind, right? So in in terms of design, you're, you're always better to be realistic, be honest and, and you know forthcoming when it comes to these sorts of uh, developments. But again, focus on what you can do and then leave a small bit to that experimental thing. If the experimental thing works, great, do more of it. If it doesn't, then no biggie because you've still focused on most of the you know, low-hanging fruit, the easy wins, the, the great next evolutions. And you know what, Sam, that all comes back to the very first thing that I talked about on the show, which is, yeah. it, which very few companies do. If you are running a manufacturing firm right now, I would, I would suggest take an honest look at every month or even three months if you're doing it far, or even every year. Do you really believe that you have a strong internal innovation information system, which collects and aggregates and organizes quality innovations from within your firm? And I can almost assure you that you, almost everybody listening right now will say, well, the engineering firm does, yeah, the department does, but that's only one of maybe 10 different avenues that you should be collecting innovation and information. And if you start with having a very well-designed information intake program, then it makes it exponentially less risky and far more profitable as you start to implement innovations, which you will notice are consistent across the firm. All the way from marketing through to like engineering, you will start to notice trends of certain things that are low-hanging fruit, easy to execute, but will have tremendous benefits to either revenue or profitability. And that's your first step and your easiest step and your least expensive step to creating great innovations going forward as a manufacturing company. Okay, that's it for today, Kevin. Do you have any last minute closing thoughts by any chance? No, that's it. I would just, if you're interested in hardware at all, please check out the Product Startup Podcast, productstartup.com. Very excited to be hosting that. Like I say, every week we have amazing guests on the show that are that are um, you know very like-minded individuals uh, out of incredible product organizations. So hope to see you there. And of course, anytime, feel free to reach out. Kevin Mako, uh, just uh, M-A-K-O. Hit me up on any social media platform and I'm happy to have a conversation, even if it's just to 
you know, point you in the right direction. So thanks, Sam. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Um, you're a great host and uh, I enjoy listening to the episodes. So thank you. Same here, my friend. You have been a great uh, guest as well. And my personal takeaway from this conversation is going to be have that strong internal innovation information system. And the more intel and the insight that you have, the better you are going to be with your innovation, the far superior your budget planning and your spend is going to be. On that note, Kevin, I really want to thank you for your time. This has been very fun and insightful conversation. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Kevin or his podcast, head over to productstartup.com. It's P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S-T-A-R-T-U-P.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Andrew Lees, who discusses how engineering can work effectively with production and finance teams. Also, the interview with Dave Haydich, who describes the role gears play in our society and the nuances associated with their manufacturing process. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.